Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. This episode of Starving for Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Hello listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade and I'm so pleased to have Andreas Yashau here today with us. Dr. Andreas Yashau is an interdisciplinary physicist with a broad expertise in photonics, the science of light. He is a light pollution researcher at the Leibniz Institute of Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries in Berlin, which we will shorten to IGB throughout the show. And his main research interest is in measuring light at night and assessing its impact on ecosystems. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We're so excited to dig into your expertise. We start every episode with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe? Yeah, so um, I, I think I have many of these moments, like being in the in the Arctic's or in like some super remote deserts to do research. And the one that that is most memorable to me is like the one which I had before I became a light pollution researcher. Mm. Um, me and my wife we crossed the Australia from east to west, went through the middle, and in the middle of Australia there's the Simpsons Desert, and. Um, in that desert, we were probably the only people in a, in a radius of like several hundred of kilometers. And it was super dark and it was also super quiet. So we were laying on our backs and we could hear the sand sort of like float down the dunes. Mm. And we were looking at this superb night sky, which is also so different to what, what we have in Europe. And we've never seen anything like that before in our lives. And it was just so mind blowing. The loneliness, mm. the stars, uh, the darkness, and the quietness. Yeah. Do you think that that experience led to part of the impetus to do light pollution research? Uh, it, it was probably one of the pieces in, in that mosaic. Um, and actually, Australia played a central role. So I moved from Berlin to Australia to do research in quantum optics, was working in a very sort of like sterile laboratory, hunting single atoms with single photons to do work on quantum computing. But we were outdoors all the time and we, we sort of like absorbed all the nature that we had around. And um, I, I bumped into light pollution while being there. So there's a, there's a little station near Brisbane where we lived mm -hmm. um, where you can learn about light pollution in the context of sea turtles. Oh, and okay. what you can do there is um, you can book a tour as a tourist uh, to uh, watch the sea turtles hatch. And then uh, you guide them with little torches uh, to the sea because uh, they won't find their way to the sea um, unless you help them. All right. And I found that quite yeah, impressive that you, you have these animals that were programmed for millions of years to follow the brightest spot once they hatch on this lonely mm. beach in Australia. And then they, they normally walk to the 
to the shore, uh, not to the shore, but to, to sort of like the sea. But once there is light around, right, they take right. the wrong way right. and, and walk all the way uh, uh, away from the, from the sea. And uh, that, plus, plus these moments in the desert, looking at the, at the night sky, were, were certainly like a, a major thing for me moving to environmental sciences and do light pollution research. Well, isn't it interesting? So you're saying that people can participate in uh, guiding the sea turtles to the sea with, with actually hand light sources uh, to counteract the light pollution that's behind the sea turtles, drawing them away from the ocean, which I, I just think it's interesting from a human experience that we've overlit the background. So now we have the onus of drawing the sea turtles ourselves back to the sea. Um, when the solution is if we would just turn the lights off, none of that would be necessary. So um, you, in 2015, transitioned to environmental sciences, um, where you apply your knowledge of light uh, and light pollution. Uh, what was the pivotal moment that you decided to direct your, your studies into that direction? Yeah, it was... Um... Um, like there was one um, moment where, 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 where me and my wife, we traveled to this uh, area north of Berlin, where, where there's uh, like this beautiful lake, Lake Stechlin. And mm -hmm. uh, there the IGB, the institute that I'm working uh, for now, um, has uh, the facility. It's called the Lake Lab. And it's sort of like built into the lake. It's a huge um, facility to study ecosystems or lake ecosystems. And I saw that facility and um, I, I look, looked at the surroundings and was like, wow, I totally envy these biologists who work at that mm. such a beautiful place and, and such an interesting um, facility. And uh, by chance, just like I, I think a, a few months or a year later, there was this advertisement that these guys were looking for, for um, some expert on light that knows about measuring light, that, that has some uh, knowledge on uh, light sources. So I'm, I'm a laser physicist by training. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So I ticked down uh, a lot of points on this list and, and the task was to build um, a, a light source for this facility to mimic sky glow. And uh, we, we did then, we did build this um, light source and then uh, we did an experiment to look at how, how this lake ecosystem reacts to this uh, sky glow and uh, this will be published uh, in early December the paper mm. on on that light source and and on the on the, some experimental backgrounds there will be more papers on on that experiment and yeah from that moment onwards I I, I really enjoyed uh, working uh, interdisciplinary with the biologist uh, to sort of like um, bring in the, the knowledge on light from a different perspective and into the biology and work on different topics um, from aquatic to um, insects to bats. I, I've, I've been working on a lot of uh, topics by now and I'm always bringing in the expertise on light. So that's so really interesting that you got to this new location where there's this beautiful setting all around you and, um, and it seems like it was quite uh, in, in alignment with what you were already doing to bring your your piece to this research. And so you were studying zooplankton, is that correct? The zooplankton navigation yeah, in the yeah, water? Among, yeah, yeah, That's that was one part. I mean, in this lake uh, experiment, we were studying uh, the, whole, uh, the whole ecosystem. Like we were looking into like what the phytoplankton, uh, how the phytoplankton, the algae react uh, to light how the zooplankton uh, changes its movement so it's, it's moving mm -hmm. up and down uh, depending on the light so during the day it goes uh, to lower depths in the lake and at night it comes up to feed on the algae and um, when there is light it wants it, it sort of like escapes the fish that we were also studying so we were looking into um, fish behavior into like zooplankton behavior um, algae growth and so on but um, we were of course I didn't do that alone, right? So I, I built the light source, measured the light, and was working in a huge team of several dozens of, of researchers, partly from all over the world. Um, 
And I think what, what also brings us together was the, the passion for, for, um, for this topic, light pollution. Mm -hmm. And so zooplankton, I've read, are the, they are considered the largest migration on the planet. Uh, on every every single dusk and dawn, the zooplankton are navigating. Um, so, can you talk about what you think that the impact of light pollution upon this massive migration that happens each day uh, might have? Yeah, so um, we are so interested in the zooplankton because it has this key role um, in the in the food web. So it sits right in the middle. Um, and um, we, yeah, indeed, the zooplankton movement is sort of like the, the most synchronized movement around the world, right? And in every little pond and in every uh, little water body, you have this movement, but also in the ocean. So it's like a, a, a massive uh, synchronized movement that normally follows the sun. Uh, so mm -hmm. like this daily pattern, yeah. And um, if, if there is like two, to, uh, if there's not enough zooplankton, for example, um, then um, algae will have more opportunity to grow. Um, mm -hmm. And um, in the natural ecosystem, right, you have a balance. So there's, there's some algae, there's some zooplankton, there's some fish. And then um, you can uh, sort of like, uh, as a cycle, so, so to say, yeah. So, so the zooplankton eats a bit of the algae, then some fish eat the zooplankton. But uh, there's not like just one species eating up every single bit of the other species, um, and and uh, we knew that there was this there was one study in a, in a lake in Boston. I think you are from Boston, right? So Marion yes. knew that this Skyglow study in Boston, yes. and uh, we were quite we we saw that she could detect this movement uh, on on zooplankton when when she was sort of like exposing it to Skyglow. And uh, one hypothesis of the study was that if we apply um, uh, this light, then the zooplankton stays at lower depths. And one of the one of the things that could happen is that the zooplankton um, community collapses, so that there is not enough mm -hmm. zooplankton because they don't dare to go up to feed on the algae. Um, and and that is not only the trouble for the zooplankton; it's also the trouble for the fish that want to eat the zooplankton. Yeah? So then right. if the zooplankton community collapses, uh, the fish community might also collapse. Plus, uh, you might have a, a gigantic algae growth. Yeah? That would be like one of the extreme um, cases. Um, we did not observe this in the severity as it, uh, as it was sort of like uh, hypothesized by us. And mm -hmm. uh, we saw, uh, sort of like more subtle changes, yeah, that like a specific group of zooplankton really did what we were expecting. But then another group um, was doing the opposite. So they actually <laughs> came up. So they were confused by the light. They were not programmed mm -hmm. to have light at night and they were not trained. Like the species in Boston, it's an urban lake. So they were used to the sky glow to some extent. Uh, our zooplankton in the lake where, where, where we did the experiment was always dark. It's like one of the darkest regions still in Germany. So, so mm. we almost have a, a perfect night sky. We can see the Milky Way. Um, it's super nice and super dark. And uh, some of these zooplankton species, they just were like, they never saw light at night in that intensity that we have provided to them. And then they just went up uh, looking at what's going on. So they were just not programmed uh, to do their thing in, in this, uh, uh, yeah, in this range that we applied light. So that was quite interesting. And it's actually so complicated um, that we haven't fully done the analysis. I mean, we are a big team, as I said, right? Mm -hmm. We also have like complicated data. So for example, to give you a, a glimpse, what we did was like, um, we have cameras that we let up and down and the mm -hmm. camera is taking an image every 10 centimeters and 20 meters of water. And then we have uh, some artificial intelligence algorithm that tell, that looks at like, is there a zooplankton in these images? And then sorts like the zooplankton species and the numbers, depending on the depth where they, where they are. And um, we do that like every night at like uh, uh, 24 of these uh, enclosures that we call mesocosms. Yeah? So they are 20 meter deep and mm -hmm. nine meter in diameter. So it's a huge facility. 
Um, so we have a huge data set. And then uh, each of these columns that we get will, will sort like several species. And then somebody has to do this analysis. Like this species follows this, what we call the dial vertical migration. So this pattern, right? But the others does the opposite or does it not, right? So you can see that um, during the night species should go up. So they should sit up here. Mm -hmm. Some go down, some go up. It's, it's relatively complicated. Um, however, we repeated this um, in, in, uh, in Berlin, in the, in the river, and there we could see the clear pattern um, that the zooplankton actually escapes the light. So uh, at bridges, illuminated bridges, we, we saw this pattern that the zooplankton goes down also during the night uh, when the bridge is illuminated and it comes up when the bridge is not illuminated. Mm. So um, I hope that answers some part of your question. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, there's nothing to replace darkness. And what you're telling me is only reiterating that point, because there might be some instances where species may try to do accordingly, regardless of their light at night. So you, you observed some zooplankton species that were still mustering the strength to come to the surface of the water in spite of light. And yet then you're also seeing there's other species that won't do it. So I always say there's nothing to replace darkness um, that while there may be some solutions in fine tuning the wavelengths of light to reduce impact, that we can't eradicate darkness. So you're only proving my own hypothesis about that. Um, and then, you know, also what you're making me think about uh, when you when you research the river, um, I recently heard a beautiful philosophical quote, though, that you cannot swim in the same river twice because it's a moving, living thing. And so I just, you know, I, I think about these aquatic systems. And also, this is kind of out there, but when I think about zooplankton being the largest migration on the planet, it also makes me think about how the skin is the largest organ, which is kind of surprisingly. But so we have this sort of skin over our planet and we're shining light, not only around cities um, with 120 mile radii that, that are cascading outward, but also we have tons of boat traffic um, that's pocketed all over the world. And we're really changing the skin of our planet and its ability to churn nutrients. And I had also read that um, scientists have likened the nightly or uh, daily migration of zooplankton to the surface of waters um, as a jet propulsion that churns the nutrients of waters across the globe. So we're really almost changing the skin of our fabric of our earth by uh, changing how these nutrients are exchanged. Uh, and so it's it's a very t small organism with an amazing amount of impact on food chains yes yes i mean when it, when it comes down to protection of animals um there is something that researchers just recently found that whenever like um humans find a, a species kind of cute or attractive or something like that right and uh, there's like this big uh effort to protect say the pandas yeah yeah or, or the sea turtles right there's no yeah. big empathy for for something like zooplankton right it's 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 mm -hmm. just there and and the importance is is quite uh, sort of like underrepresented in the overall media and so on right and um yeah so we researched zooplankton in this in this uh in this big facility in the river and um, inspired by some colleagues from the from Norway, uh, Jürgen Berge, who's, who's uh, there's also like a, a movie about, um, I forgot the name about the movie, um, but there's a filmmaker that followed like Jürgen during the Arctic night uh, on a ship uh, and, and uh, they measure like what the zooplankton actually does in the super dark polar night. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the researchers from Norway, they found out several things. So first, this, this, migration in polar night adjusts to the moon so instead mm. of following the sun 
the sun cycle, right? So then the zooplankton starts uh, uh, to follow the lunar cycle. And uh, I, I guess Jürgen is also like kind of a cool person. So, so he termed uh, the, the name werewolf zooplankton because it's sort of like following the full moon uh, pattern. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and he found out several things. Like, for example, you mentioned chips. Yeah. So, so he found out that his, his own research vessel was dis disturbing his measurements on a zooplankton. So uh, mm -hmm. when they had lights on the ship, whatever they measured was wrong. So they had to like sort of like uh, emerge themselves into the super darkness, right? Take like this uh, ship into like switch off all the lights and then repeat the measurements to get um, really uh, the, the right signal from what the zooplankton does in its migration. And mm. um, it is so crazy, right? It's like an ecosystem like uh, so far remote from, from, from humanity from where people live because there's like boat traffic or ship traffic, right? Um, zooplankton still is affected uh, by light, by light pollution, and uh, it's like, yeah, probably one of the darkest uh, habitats for a longer period of time, like the polar night um, in winter. And uh, you think there's nothing living out there, right? It feels so harsh and so unhuman, but uh, then you can still detect that these uh, species react out there. And um, we did. Uh, uh, an experiment in Finland on a frozen lake to look at like uh, if like the um, the the zooplankton in the lake there's like a, a layer of snow there's a layer of ice and then there's the water body and it's the middle of winter minus 25 degrees Celsius um, and um, we saw a little like dip in the in the zooplankton movement it's 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 very much buried in the noise. So we were there with some Russians from from Lake Baikal, and they said, "Yeah, they uh, they can repeat this experiment," and and uh, they did. Like so, then at Lake Baikal, they can drive like a gigantic truck uh, on this frozen lake it has like two or three meters of ice, and then mm -hmm. they were shining a, a normal floodlight you can buy buy just in a store. That was what we were buying in Finland, and did some experiments out there on the frozen lake. They repeated the experiment uh, in Lake Baikal, and we can clearly see the zooplankton in Lake Baikal being affected by this floodlight down to 50 meters. So it's like 50 meters, meters below the ice, 50, 50 meters below. It's like several meters of ice, and then 50 meters, uh, and the zooplankton basically immediately just goes away to the side because they they cannot so go sad. fast enough down. They just go all the way. To they scatter and um, yeah, they just escape the light and they don't they don't mind uh, the direction so much, uh, but they just es escape the beam of light basically immediately. So we we, we see it like on a subsecond uh, uh, information. Hey, <laughs> um, <It's> Ferdinand. <laughs> hey, Ferdinand. That's my cat. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it hurt. Something like lakes and fish and so right, it's then getting attracted. Yes, um, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Down to fifty meters, we could see that this, that the zooplankton signal is, uh, is is affected, or like the distribution. And then when we switch, or the colleagues in Russia, they switch the lights off again, right? Then the zooplankton slowly comes back. So you see, like immediately, they go away, and slowly yeah. when the light is off, they come back. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was something that we we are just writing up and um, um, going to publish. And yeah, and actually well, coming back to the first question, that that yeah. uh, moment in Finland was was probably the second most awe moment that I had with with dark skies. Oh. Right, it was like like uh, a, a, a huge lake, so we had to drive twenty minutes with the with the snowmobile on that lake, and then. Uh, we were there, snow, snowy desert, and then there came the aurora, right? And that's like then this this other awe moment when you are in the middle of nowhere, in the cold, and then uh, the the northern lights uh, sort of like paint the sky really nicely, and you see the crazy light pollution from all around, even up up north at the polar circle where we where we did this um, experiment. 
Firstly, I think it's funny that you used a floodlight um, only because I've recently been commenting that I find it funny that we have a whole type of lighting in the lighting industry that is named after an environmental disaster of too much water. Uh, and so it just goes to show how unintentionally we're using light to uh, flood our earth with light with no understanding of its impact. And actually, the way that you describe the movement of the zooplankton is as if a bomb went off and people scattered, and then they slowly come back to the environment where the light, where the bomb went off. So this, this beam or bomb of light that's coming down through the water, it's also not surprising that it's 50, uh, 50 meters below, because we know that one fixture can pollute up to 120 miles away. So here you have this light coming down and creating a very, uh, you can tell the zooplankton don't want to be there. It's an unharmonious environment for them. And so it just, it, also that you mentioned that they, they zooplankton at the poles follow a lunar cycle. That doesn't surprise me since the sun has such a large absence during parts of the year that they would adopt a lunar cycle of light. And the way that humans are lighting the planet, it's like we've removed the conductor, the, the main conductor, the Rosetta Stone, our natural daylight cycle. And now we just have this crazy uh, incongruent light that's coming and means nothing. It's garble to wildlife. So I think that's all very interesting to hear about this impact. And also I wanna say that when you commented that the scientists realized that they had to turn the lights off of their ship to not impact their research. And you also commented that when you first visited the lake um, north of Berlin and this research facility, that you were felt so lucky that you could potentially take part in such a beautiful environment and also do your research, that I would say we're better scientists when we're communing with nature, when we're in alignment, when we're turning the lights out for ourselves too, and also experiencing what we want to study. So do you, do, would you agree or disagree that the beautiful environment also helps to elevate the scientific thinking? So that's an interesting <laughs> uh, uh, thinking. I mean, um, what, what, what certainly, uh, helps is that whenever I'm there, so I live in, near Berlin, so in a more urbanized uh, surrounding. So I go to this, mm -hmm. to this place uh, every now and then and, and do research uh, of the night sky, uh, the brightness of the night sky. Whenever I'm there, I, I feel like um, uh, coming down, right? It's like really like, you know, you have uh, all the busyness of the city and everything. And when you're there, then then you can focus much better on on certain thoughts and and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So so when yeah. I'm when I'm out there on the lake at night, I'm mostly alone, and uh, then I do like my measurements uh, with with cameras and uh, yeah, like measurement devices, yeah, and um, yeah, then I have also time to think, right? While while I'm just doing uh, obtaining these measurements, I can think, right? And and um, it's it's not scientific but what what i feel all the time when i'm there is like that whenever i come back to the city right and uh, people that only live in cities and never go to places mm -hmm. like that they are missing out i mean that's uh, certainly something um uh i got used to work in the darkness i i got used to adapt to the darkness um we were trying out things like how long does it take uh for us to dark adapt to be able to walk in the in the forest next to the next to that lake and and all that kind of things right well whenever i'm in the city people would um switch on lights whenever it's dark people use their phones uh use sort of like flashlights and stuff like that right to to whatever it's it's just kind of a habit of 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 normality and we totally forget um, that, that there are species that are sort of like living in the darkness. And I always have this analogy with sound. Imagine you would mm. um, 
put up like a huge noise all of the sudden, right? And or like a very uh, high frequency tone or anything, right? Um, people would find that annoying. Um, and if you are yeah. totally dark adapted, then switching on your phone will be like, oh, this is way too bright, right? In the morning, you would sometimes have this, right? My kids don't like it when I switch on the lights in the morning, um, things like that. But when you are adjusted to this brightness, you think it's normal. And, and adding a little bit doesn't matter. So we humans tend to add, uh, make it a little bit brighter and brighter and brighter, which you also see in satellite imagery. Um, and yeah, that's certainly not good, right? We can, we can think of ourselves that we humans have a huge capability, um, a visual uh, capability. So probably if we, if we lower all the lights in our environment, we, we could probably still move around, navigate and uh, feel safe and actually be safe um, mm -hmm. um, without flooding. I like that uh, thinking of, I never thought about the floodlight in a way like this, but I like that. Uh, without it flooding the environment. <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious that yeah. you don't think about it, right? It's, yeah, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing. I wouldn't go that far that like, uh, it, it, I wouldn't connect it to science that much, right? I mean, there are like environmental scientists, there are other scientists and I don't know if like somebody that uh, produces vaccines should go to a dark area. I don't know. It, it seems a bit far-fetched to me. Um, certainly uh, as a, as a uh, I would recommend that to everyone. I wouldn't exclusively recommend it to scientists, right? Um, to to right. every now and then go to like a pristine area uh, and also enjoy the night sky and uh, yeah, enjoy the darkness. I think the darkness is something that we attach to uh, so many bad things, but darkness isn't necessarily something really bad, right? And uh, also a night sky, uh, not light polluted night sky is not darkness, right? It's, it's, it's a confusion that we often do. It's just wrong. It's very bright and is kind of what you're saying that it's actually a vast amount of natural light in the natural darkness. It's not ne it's not necessarily very bright, but I mean, if you are um, in, a, in an open place and you have the Milky Way up um, and you wait, say, 20 minutes or so, uh, uh, most people will be able to walk around. I mean, not at the edge of the Grand Canyon or something like that, right? Say you are in a near a beach or something, right? Then you can probably see enough uh, to to not fall into the to the sea, um, and uh, that is something that most people living in urban areas uh, just don't experience, and that they also don't want to experience because they are so much used to using artificial light, right? So so we really have disconnected because. I mean, uh, our ancestors, they were walking around uh, during full moon and they were also probably walking around uh, during clear, clear nights when there was no moon. Um, as long as they could sort of like, uh, uh, yeah, so they, they could see some threat or something, right? They wouldn't walk to the, to the super dark forest because that would have scared them too much. Um, but um, if you think of um, uh, us today, it's just so normal. People go out of their home. It's bright inside, like in my place right now. If I go outside, mm -hmm. I, I don't see anything. If it would be like at that lake we're talking about all the time, right? I would have to wait at least two minutes or so to see something. So then it's inconvenient and you switch on the lights. But theoretically, I could just dim my home lights and then make the transition from indoor to outdoor. Um, much easier with much less light in the outdoors and the ability to move around. Right. So I, I am going to push back on, on what you said a little bit earlier, and I think you'll probably agree with me anyway, but that um, it's not scientific that someone could have a different set of thinking at the lake versus say in an urban environment. And um, I actually think that it is absolutely scientific that we just haven't backed it up with science. But this is something that I write a lot about, which is that we have 
changed how we perceive the world around us by only experiencing brightly lit environments. And we lock our hormones into these stagnant, stagnantly lit environments so that we're not changing our hormonal landscape. And that I think, like you said, you feel that people are missing out when they are not able to experience that lake environment. And I think that we're actually changing our thought patterns massively across the planet. And that when we actually allow natural darkness to set, so a very different experience happens and a very different way of perceiving our bodies, minds, and the world around us happens. And since no, most people are not taking that, even I myself, you know, I have an iPhone, I live in an urban environment, I, I never, I don't have a fireplace. I don't have a lot of access to natural light sources. So I think we are, we have removed an entire way of perceiving and also meditating through our daily uh, experiences. And I think that science will soon show that these other ways of perceiving are actually very valuable and critical ways to approach problem solving and that we've removed that as a tool uh, from our perception. Any thoughts about that? <laughs> I mean, uh, so I, 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 I said that we disconnect, right? And, and um, I also mm -hmm. said that when, whenever I'm out there, I, I, have, I can focus much better, right? Um, it's it's just probably not for for everyone and and um yeah so um i guess there is also science on like that uh that uh this this lack of proper circadian rhythms and so on is is like impacting uh, uh our cap capabilities right on on, on ma many different ways right so um it's it's just it's just a matter of like uh, practicality at the moment, right? That that it's mm -hmm. it's uh, people live in urban environments. Like how 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 do you move them in a in a? I said the vaccinations, right? So you you have to develop a vaccination. You are under time pressure, right? And then somebody comes and like, Bing Bing Bing! It's your dark dark sky time. You have yeah. to go for two weeks to this dark sky place. Um, it, it seems difficult at, at, at right now, right? So, so however, it might be the right thing to do. So, I mean, um, scientists go on retreats. Uh, scientists do sabbaticals, right? And and whenever I talk to this uh, elderly professor uh, about like the most productive time recently, it will be like, ah, oh, when I did my sabbatical. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so sometimes. In general, taking time off from from what you do will accelerate um, uh, your uh, yeah probably your innovations and and you know so so your creativity. Um, and I totally agree that that uh, humanity uh, has too much disconnected from the natural night sky, from the natural night. Uh, mm -hmm from like most people wouldn't know what moon phase it is right here in an urban environment by right. people living in villages they know that they they can see that they they sort of like experience that right and uh i found it quite quite cool that my my daughter when she was four she was telling um um uh, some adults when they when the adults told her that like the the moon is up every night right she told this is wrong like the moon is also up during the day because she did the observation on her own i didn't tell her anything about it right it was just like whenever we saw the moon uh, i said i looked up there's the moon um, um several times and then i forgot about it but she kept on observing and when 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 an adult said you know the moon is up uh, every night the, the moon rises and you have to go to bed and then she's like this is wrong the moon is up during the day every now and then and it's just every at, at, it comes up uh, every night at a different time and this this was an observation she made on her own because she paid attention yeah. 
and we don't pay attention anymore, right? We don't care about the moon so much. We care about our iPhones. We care about uh, what was in the news. We, we care about uh, whatever, like, the, uh, yeah, the, the normal things that we do, right? We don't uh, look at, at, the, at the night sky, particularly in the urban environment. And, but we work on changing that. Right, so we we, right. we not only communicate our um, uh, findings on zooplankton. We also I'm also working on a project about uh, street lighting, where we want to implement uh, new types of street lighting. I work on a project that is about um, protection of bats, um, where where we want to change the lighting around uh, bat communities and and all this kind of stuff. So um, yes, yeah, so. With the bat lighting, are are you fine-tuning combinations of wavelengths that could also reduce impact on bats while maintaining human visibility with lights? What is the the research that you're doing there? Uh, the, what what we're doing there is 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 very applied. So we go uh, to um, a place where where bats are, like for example, mm -hmm. some old churches. Um, and then they will live in the tower. And uh, the, the thing that I do is like I quantify the light environment. So I have a, a little drone so I can fly up to this tower oh, wow. and then uh, measure the light uh, in the bat's eye view, right? Um, I also go up into the tower and measure with a camera out of the uh, space where the, where the bats fly out. Um, plus I use the drone to then look around what, what could be dis disturbing for the bats. Um, we don't do research on specific wavelengths there, right? It's more like we go to this church, for example, um, then we quantify the lights and then we say this light is bad and that light uh, needs to be replaced and, and this kind of stuff. Um, and we monitor the bad behavior in the meantime. So I, I work with a colleague that has a, a, an infrared camera where he can see how the bats fly out. Um, of this church, and um, then we do this before when there is light pollution around this uh, this bad community, and then um, we change the lights. So right now, I'm planning changing the lights um, at uh, certain places, like a church, um, a town hall, um, and so on. And uh, in the next year, we will look if this has changed the behavior of the bats. So we know when they fly out. So we, mm. to, we might see that they fly out earlier or later. Um, and we want to see if they fly on a different path when they fly out. So right now we have one building where they come out and they fly over the roof and then there's light and then they make this turn and they fly wow. all the way wow. to they change their direction. And then we want to change the lights just in front of that building and see if the bats then fly out straight or if it if, if the light wasn't actually the one that was disturbing them. Um, yeah, but, but the wavelength um, sort of like susceptibility is not at the focus of, of these studies. Um, there are some studies from colleagues where they, where they found, uh, some found that green light is good, others found uh, that that red light is good, right? This is uh, this is again a little bit with the zooplankton, which I said in the beginning. Some species are like this, and some species are like that. Um, yeah. yeah. Right now, for the dark sky communities, for example, is dark sky movement, right? Um, all the all the blue wavelengths um, are more or less um, found to be not so great for the environment, for the night sky observations, and so on. So people move to more um, what's more red lights um, for some species of bats uh, my colleagues told me it's actually bad to have uh, then this kind of light and it would be better to have green lights so it, yeah but you cannot of course run around and change all the lights to green lights um, but something that we work on is then that you have sort of like a tailored approach around um, such communities, not in the project where I'm working on right now, but, but some other colleagues, they try then to investigate if a super tailored spectrum of, of, of light yeah. um, is actually better for the bats or, or actually not, right? Um, 
yeah that's i've long that's believed such... that's the solution is find finding some combinations of wavelengths that are less harmful that still allow for human visibility. I know there are some case studies happening in the Netherlands where they have installed bat-friendly lights that seem to not really impact the species. And I this is where I feel that LEDs have been the curse, but that they could potentially be the cure because there's no other light source that we've been able to fine tune wavelengths in such a way. So that is my great hope for wildlife friendly lighting in the future. Um, but with the huge asterisk that there's nothing to replace natural darkness because each species responds differently to light. So we don't want to over design to one species and then have unintended consequences in others. But I still think that there's probably a middle ground there that can be accomplished. And it's really interesting just to see what you're studying, which is the the general movement of a bat species in relation to avoiding light. I think that's important for people to see and feel that response in a species to light. Just as you're saying with the zooplankton scattering underneath the surface of the water, I think more stories like that help to build the collective consciousness and the understanding of light that it does have an impact because currently the the zeitgeist is not aware of how light impacts humans or even wildlife and as you're saying it's very intuitive to say sound uh, you know an annoying sound is uh, is something that you shouldn't have on through the night but but it's not intuitive for light and something i just recently learned which is that the human ear can't even hear all of the range of sound that comes from our own voices. So it just goes to show that with these sensory experiences, humans have maybe, we're, we're not the most, uh, we're very smart, we're very intelligent, but our senses are not what wildlife senses are. They're much, much more sensitive to various, various stimulations. So we, we kind of don't even really have a clear view of the impact we're creating with light at night or with sound. Um, I would venture to say that there's probably sounds that we haven't realized we're creating that are causing great harm for wildlife on the planet. So I, I also wanna to touch back and say um, something before, which you said that there's a practicality issue in urban environments and how we advocate for darkness. And I think that's absolutely true. And that your the your your colleague said his best most productive time was sabbatical, and I think that that's because you know, and I feel the same way too. Sometimes when it gets it's before nine or after five, I have such a sense of relief that I won't be interrupted, that I won't get an email that's going to you know divert an hour from the task that I was trying to accomplish. And I think there's something about the light-driven information that's constantly coming through that makes us want to pack our bags and go to a retreat and cut it off. Um, and that there's a practicality issue of making that happen on a daily basis. But I think that we would be um, better humans, better designers, better scientists if we could practically build that back into a nightly experience. And that's what we once had, um, but we are no longer taking it. So, um, well, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would like to comment on that, right? I mean, yeah, I would say do. right now, this is not practical, but we should not give up, right? Because, <laughs> um, uh, as you said, we, we are just careless with light. With light at night we just use a lot of it um and and if we can land at this sweet spot where we where we have light at night so that the people can do their things and and are in a safe environment and so on right but at the same time reduce the unnecessary emissions um, into the environment and into the night sky um i think there's huge potential to reduce the light pollution so much that if you live in an in an urban environment, it will only be like 
maybe a half an hour drive or something like that to experience this night sky. Like Berlin is not too bad. Like most people would find Berlin super dark, right? Hmm. But still, Berlin is quite safe compared to other cities in the world, not talking about US cities, right? Um, but this place, which is one of the darkest areas uh, among the darkest places in, in Germany, um, almost a near perfect night sky is only an hour drive from the city center of Berlin. Wow. Um, If I had that in Boston, and... I would be driving there all the time. <laughs> There's no place that you can escape yeah. to. And, uh, and we also have an IDA dark sky park that is also like just one, one hour, one and a half hour from the center of Berlin. And uh, that's, a, that's sort of like a, a certified dark sky place. Um, and uh, so Berlin is not too bad uh, for what reason soever, right? I mean, this is not in, in the focus of my research. It's just probably, um, but, but I map uh, the sky glow around Berlin and uh, I, I drive around at night and, and do camera measurements and so on. And then uh, I can see like, you know, how, how quickly the, the sky glow, the, the, the uh, enhanced night sky brightness from light scattered in the atmosphere um, is, is getting better and better. And, and around Berlin, it's not too bad. So even from my house, I can see the Milky Way. It's not great, but it's there. Um, and um, if we would reduce or if we would replace all the fixtures in Berlin, um, that are still radiating into the sky or limit really the light uh, emissions to the places where we really need the, the, uh, really need the light. Um, we would be surprised that if we, even if we don't change the intensity at all, um, it would be even better uh, than how it is now. How much, I don't know, but I would uh, make a guess that you can probably at least cut this emission into half very easily. Right? It will not be cheap, but from a technological or physics point of view, it's, 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 it's not magic. Yeah? Um, uh, however, it's, it's a huge effort to convince uh, the politicians, to convince the people uh, Yeah. to, to do this. Um, and once you get there, uh, once you have these, like there are even several dark sky Uh, cities around the world where they have the light fixtures uh, sort of like uh, improved, make dark sky friendly, right? Um, and if you think this is only half of the story, right? This is about the emissions upwards. This is not talking about if you lit, if you uh, have a street and you want to light that street, that you sort of like uh, also light everything left and right of it, right? The urban park next to it and so on, right? So this. This is only the, the upward emission. Um, and if you, and we work also on this uh, light in the environment. So say we have a street that's this wide. Um, then the street lights right now, they radiate in, in all the directions like this. So they, they, uh, they, you have light on the, on the wall of the houses, left and right. Right. You have uh, light on the trees and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, but only like 20% of the light hits the street. So if you can narrow down the light just on that street, um, you would save energy and you would sort of like uh, totally reduce uh, uh, light emission into the environment and in people's houses um, Yep. and so on, right? And um, uh, we, we have to get there. And once we get there, um, then we would be surprised, I would say, uh, because then we can also reduce probably the intensity Um, and uh, then we can probably also just take an hour drive from Boston to see the Milky Way. Yeah. And and uh that Yeah. that And design uh, that scenario design which is very common to see streetlights actually pushing light into windows. It's also creating a cyclical effect where humans no longer realize they're not experiencing darkness. And then when they feel darkness, it's scary, it's uncertain. Our, uh, our pupils have grown weak to be able to expand to that large circular 
um, circumference. So it's, it's an unsettling thing, but we're actually kind of taking this exercise out of most people's common experiences. And I totally agree with you that there's a sweet spot that we have not found yet. And that if we can carve away some of the egregious lighting and then start to be really intentional, that it would be just so much more beautiful of an experience. And, and that I think by then also creating potentially dark sky experiences that are only an hour away from major cities, you can start to begin to sell the idea and reconnect people to natural darkness and all its value because people just don't know anymore. They've totally, totally forgotten. So is there anything that you'd like to leave us with your upcoming research? Um, yeah, we, we, um, maybe I can just say one more last thing about this, uh, yeah. this streetlight project. Yeah. So we talked about the zooplankton, we talked about the bats, uh, and now we work on like insect friendly street lighting. So, um, the idea behind this is, um, what I just outlined that we only want to light up, uh, really the, the street or the footpath or the cyclist path, um, where you need the light. But then mm -hmm. we also want to hide um, sort of like the light fixture uh, from uh, animals, not, 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 not insects only, but uh, animals living in the surroundings. Because mm -hmm. um, right now we are, we are quite, quite used to that, say we are uh, next to a village, uh, outside of a village. It's pretty dark and we can see the village from several kilometers because the light fixtures emit a lot of light in the horizontal direction that then travels for hundreds of meters and uh, such light fixtures will attract for example insects and uh, might disturb other animals uh, birds migrating birds for example and um, we are right now working with uh, companies on uh, shielding these lights but extremely mm -hmm. shielding these lights so that you cannot see them say, if you're standing 10 meters away from that street. Um, and it's technologically possible, and we are investigating um, how this is impacting um, insect populations. Um, we will set up this um, in, in January, February at uh, uh, a field site that we have in, uh, in this, this dark sky park, the West Havelland near hmm. Berlin. Um, and then later we will also bring this uh, into villages, for example, the village with the with the beautiful lake that I'm working on. And there we will also, because we want to find the sweet spot, we will also then uh, talk to the people and ask them how they like or not like this light. Because at the end of Love the day, uh, it's not only like a technical, right? I could be just the engineer physicist, say like, this is where the light has to go and ignore what the people want, right? Um, but we also have this uh, citizen science approach where we where mm -hmm. we talk to the people, where we, um, yeah, uh, get their feelings about the new light. Is it is the shielding too extreme? Is the color temperature like this? Is that is that okay or is that not okay? Right? Because uh, humans are creatures of habit. Um, yeah. So you are used to certain things, right? And if you are used for like decades that this you have this uh, this lamp that radiates in all the directions, and uh, that the village is like looking as it is looking, right? And then we come and we we just illuminate the street and cut off all mm -hmm. the lights on the on the buildings. People might be offended or like they, they might not like it, right? So we also want to get their opinions, right? And uh, then from, from all this information, from like uh, how this, this is hopefully uh, better for, for uh, the environment, the insects, um, plus how the feelings of safety and uh, the aesthetic uh, feelings of the people are, right? then we want to distill um, a future streetlight uh, uh, from, from this experiment. And uh, that's the something that we have on the in the pipeline that we are working on right now and uh, i'm excited about that research as well 
I am too, and I think it's fantastic that you're trying to integrate the people's opinion because it is critical. And I think when we talk about darkness, it does trigger people's sense of alarm that there might be a safety issues coming at, uh, coming in that they would be worried about. So I think when you're, I remember once um, an, an elder architect said to me um, when I was working in a, a design firm, she said, I'll never forget it. She actually gave me this uh, Ganesha right here. <laughs> um, but she said, you have to bring it all up at once, the whole project. So each piece has to come up together. So that's exactly what you're doing. You're bringing the human component up and you're also addressing, which is a massive ecological problem, which is the decline of insects on the planet. And we're seeing that happen all over. I think light is certainly a factor. So um, I am so pleased to know that you're addressing that issue because it, it will affect everything. There's 10 quintillion insects on the planet at any given time. They outweigh humans 70 to one. And so the way that we're illuminating our planet is just using the adage moth to a flame and we're actually seeing this this insect apocalypse so the fact that you're designing light sources that might not be able to be seen from an insect from further away could potentially really reduce impact so that sounds like a very very exciting i'm so pleased to hear about that work on the horizon and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today andy um, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your research. Please come back again. We'd love to hear what you're working on. So thank you so much. Thank you. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.